Welcome back to DCEKG with Joe Grogan and Eric Euland. On DCEKG, we try and diagnose the policy uh, maladies affecting Washington, D.C. and prescribe some remedies. Today, we're going to be joined by GBI. GBI is a Ph.D. CPA, a professor of accounting at Johns Hopkins Carey Business School and professor of health policy and management at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She's an expert on healthcare accounting, finance, and policy. She has testified before the House Ways and Means Committee, written for the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. She's been published in leading academic journals such as the New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, Health Affairs. She's widely featured in the media and used in uh, congressional hearings frequently. She comments on government regulations. And she's the recipient of the Johns Hopkins Alumni, Alumni Association's Excellence in Teaching Award, which may be the most significant element there if she's actually a good teacher. There aren't enough, enough of them. And she's a visiting scholar at the Health Analysis Division of the Congressional Budget Office. Uh, that was between 2022 and 2023. I wish she was still there because CBO needs all the help they can get. So, gee, uh, before we jump in on this, the meat of it, I'd like to talk a little bit about your background because I think it's it's kind of interesting. Uh, it's also interesting that you you your advanced degree is in accounting, but where where were you born? Where are you from? Um, let's start there. I was born in China. I came to states twenty years ago, so uh, that's that's a long time. But I got my my degree, undergrad degree in China, in Japanese literature and mechanical engineering. Then I came to States as a trading spouse because my husband got a scholarship from University of Michigan in the PhD program, mechanical engineering. So I came as a trading spouse. I was just supposed to be a spouse and too bored. <laughs> and I, I decided to pick a major uh, that is useful. My mom said, just, you know, business school, whatever major, is, is relatively hard, but useful. And I, I chose accounting. Then I graduated uh, because my Japanese language background, I got the job uh, from a Japanese automaker in, in Detroit. So I worked for a year, I got bored and I applied to um, a PhD program in accounting. I want to be a professor. Then I I got rejected everywhere. Finally, Michigan State gave me an offer and I, I was so happy you know, that my uh, PhD education from Michigan State University a concentration in accounting. Then I got my first job in Washington Lee University in Lexington, Virginia. Four years, liberal arts college, very much fun. And then opportunity came from Johns Hopkins uh, in the business school. Uh, so actually Johns Hopkins preferred at that time a, a professor who can teach accounting, also do some research in healthcare. And you know, look around, there's really no, nobody um, <laughs> with that unique combination. So I, so I got the job, I came. This is my eighth year in Johns Hopkins. I think our listeners here at DCEKG would be really interested in why literature and engineering to start off with. What caused you to decide to double major in something that for most people's mind, you know, is a significant liberal arts and a pretty technical, almost science major and to do them both together at the same time. Thank you, Eric. So Japanese literature, um, I, I like because I originally my friend was from the Manchu area, 
the northeast part was colony of Japan. So my grandma, grandpa used to speak Japanese. And so from, from very young age, I like Japanese culture, uh, philosophy. So, <laughs> so that, that major actually is the design major. You, you cannot choose. It's a combined five-year program. And I was like, oh, Japanese literature, great. I want to learn that. And also remember China's economy depends on exporting, right? So this major was designed for exporting things to, to Japan. <laughs> so especially engineering stuff. That's why we had to learn uh, Japanese literature, language, and engineering, mechanical engineering, all those courses, and also exporting, like the uh, international trade, uh, basic finance. So that major gave me exposure to, to both the literature, humanity side, and also business side, as well as engineering training, you know, making me always think logically <laughs> as I can. So, I, and, and thanks for that explanation. So the, the, the prime export out of this program sounds like it was you, <laughs> courtesy of being a spouse and ultimately coming to the United States. You mentioned that part of this, you, you'd gone to work, but you were bored. What was boring about work that really incented you to head back and, and earn these advanced degrees? <laughs> Thank you. Um, I came here um, after I have witnessed a lot in China. You know the Chinese regime, right? And also there are some family background at my father's side, um, there are some, um, some, some issues going on. So I have to say, relatively to my peers, I have seen a lot. And I really value the, the opportunity to choose to do things that I want, not taking, taking orders, being forced, right? So, you know, in, in, in a company, like while I was there, it was uh, internal auditing, it was a great company. But then your jobs very well defined, right? You have to do what, what your boss tells you to do. And even if you can do all the things in two hours, you still have to be there. So that kind of limitation is not something I wanted. And luckily, you know, my, my mom gave me enough financial support so would, I could afford to choose uh, whatever I want to, choose, to do. And I look at my accounting professor in my master's program and she always you know, just come, come, came to class and taught two courses and then, and then left uh, at home, do whatever she wanted. So I was like, that's a, that's a great life. I can, I can choose whatever I want to learn, I want to explore. So let's do it. That, that's how I, I started this journey uh, for an uh, academic career. Gee, I got, I've got a question. First of all, we could probably spend the whole time just talking about this and your career journey and, and the number of institutions that you attended. But I, I want to, before we go on to the the policy substance in your professional work now, so you apply to all these schools and Michigan State is the only one that lets you in. Obviously, you did well enough to end up at, was it Washington Lee and then Hopkins? So do you have any theories? Like what was, I don't want to say wrong, but why were no other, you're clearly uh, smart. What was it with the other schools that they failed to see what Michigan State saw? Oh, you are too kind, Joe. Thank you. Well, <laughs> you know, I always say, like in the Washington playground, I I'm not a golden boy, golden girl, because my undergraduates is from China, and, and well, I would say most of my friends undergraduate from Ivy League top schools. I think the the undergraduate degree right makes the difference. So when I applied, you know, I'm from an unknown uh, China university. And also I never worked for a big four accounting firm. I worked for a Japanese company. 
So that also, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, I, I would say it's not a advantage. So I, I do think there are a lot of signals on the job market with, with the application market that can reflect a person's potential. But at that time, I think all the other schools probably made the, the right decision based on my background. But Michigan State uh, chose me also for, for an important reason, because I my under my uh, PhD, well, sorry, uh, my work in the Japanese company is really about internal auditing, about costing. So the Michigan State the program is known for a very good at cost accounting. So that's a good match. Hmm. Okay, that's interesting. All right, let's dive in to some of your work that that has garnered a fair amount of attention lately. Um, can we talk about charity hospitals and your investigations um, and the the writing that you've done on charity care and not for profit hospitals? Do you want to, why don't we start with what drew you to looking at charity care and not-for-profit hospitals? I usually choose an area that is relatively empty. If it's crowded, I will try not to be there, right? Uh, and then charity care is such a uh, area like underexplored uh, and also can utilize my advantage. What is my advantage? As an accountant, I know how to read the reports. So I'm looking at this huge cost report. Uh, you know, every Medicare certified hospital in the United States has to file annual cost report to CMS. It's a pretty comprehensive report. And then there is one form uh, amongst multi-cousin, uh, uh, several cousin, uh, sorry, several dozen forms uh, showing a hospital's charity care amount. So that really, at that time, is a epiphany moment. I was like, wow, we have a gold mine. This is self-reported charity care number by every single hospital. It's very comparable across hospitals and it's verifiable, objectively measured. So why don't we take a look? Um, so, so that is a technical reason I, I went into the area. Secondly, you know, nonprofit is really pro, uh, playing a very important role in the hospital market, right? More than half of the hospital beds are owned by nonprofit hospitals. But then there's always a, a con social contract not well recognized by the public, by which I mean taxpayers subsidize nonprofit hospitals and nonprofit hospitals must do something in return. This is a fundamental social contract, but I don't see people, um, I, I mean, sufficient people really look into this. So that's why uh, I, you know, because of theoretical reason and the technical reason, I entered this area. And G, what did you discover as you started to dive into the details and work through the reports, the claims versus the facts? What have you determined as a result of your exploration and investigation? Simply speaking, taxpayers give nonprofit hospitals substantial tax exemption value. In return, nonprofit hospitals in aggregate are not providing sufficient charity care or other community benefit to deserve the tax exemption. Why I say this is based on the results. No, this. On this equation, we don't know how much tax benefit received by hospitals because that's not disclosed. We're completely in the dark. However, we do know that for-profit hospitals do not receive tax exemption value, right? So a reasonable approach would be comparing non-profit versus for-profit. Let's take a look who provides more. Guess what? For every $100 expense incurred by hospitals, non-profit hospitals provide $3.80 charity care. But for uh, but the sorry, for-profit households provide three dollar eighty cents charity care. 
and nonprofit hospitals provide only $2.30. So in aggregate, nonprofits providing less charity care than for-profit, which uh, uh, actually have to pay taxes and have to, um, uh, can, cannot get tax-exempt uh, charitable contributions and cannot enjoy tax-free bonds, right? So, you know, adding all these components together, I think it's reasonable to conclude that nonprofit hospitals are not providing enough charity care or community benefit to deserve their tax exemption value. So the data shows a nearly $2 gap in charity care coverage between profit and nonprofit hospitals. Why is that? What have you determined causes this large gap so that for-profit hospitals are providing more charity care than nonprofit hospitals. I think it's because the line between nonprofit and for-profit is getting working and here uh, for the past decades. So we we are seeing nonprofit hospitals engaged in activities that's usually not uh, expected for nonprofits. So charity care is just one of the the, the tip of the of the iceberg. Look at you know garnishing pay for people who cannot pay the medical bills, and then consolidation, jackpot price. Uh, so all sorts of uh, behaviors, so very much profit-driven, now are pretty common among nonprofit. So, you know, the federal government says every nonprofit hospital has to have a charity care policy. But in terms of how much you provide, well, that's within your own discretion. So that's why you know, nonprofit households take advantage of that, right? They, they do whatever they, they want, what they think necessary, but that does not mean it is sufficient to justify their tax exemption status. Is there an impact from Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, that has in some way driven some of the disparity? Did we see a change after Obamacare was passed and Medicaid adjusted um, and how these hospitals have approached their responsibilities for charity. Yes, absolutely. Our research found after ACA for Medicaid expanded states, the charity care provision in their nonprofit hospital actually dropped. But the other non-Medicaid expansion states, the charity care provision actually improved. Well, that should make sense because in the Medicaid expansion states, we have fewer and fewer uninsured patients. However, remember, nonprofit households have their own discretion to adjust their charity care policy. So let's say right now I'm providing charity care to people below 200% federal poverty line. I can adjust it tomorrow to be 300% to be more generous, right? So hospitals can provide more charity care if they want. But the problem is, you know, if I have fewer uninsured patients, I have uh, less demand from them, I won't really expand my provision of charity care to underinsured, hardworking, uh, working class Americans. So, so that's why we're seeing lower and lower charity care from Medicaid expansion states and higher uh, spending for, on charity care from Medicaid non-expanding states because they, they still have a lot of uninsured patients have that need. So we have this disparity and this large gap, some of which driven by how the law, Obamacare law was written and in practice how it played out in these states. What can be done, if anything, to address this um, imbalance or is this imbalance just something that was there before, no matter what you do, will continue to be the case going forward? Uh, I believe that sunshine is the best solution at this at this point, we don't even know enough 
about uh, the charity care behavior. So we propose, like in my testimony, and also in a New England Journal of Medicine publication, I propose uh, the disclosure at the federal level. Just, you know, under the tax, tax filing, annual tax filing form 990, let every nonprofit hospital report how much is their tax exemption value. Like how much is your property tax exemption value that you enjoy, that, that you are it's foregone, right? You don't need to pay. And then how much is your sales tax, how much is your income tax exemption value, and then how much is your lower cost of borrowing because of tax exemption status. So those uh, pieces of information can give policymakers, local community, uh, some kind of benchmark right, for them to evaluate. Well, I, I do not believe uh, one size fits all regulation at the federal level. Uh, I think that will have a lot of unintended consequences. But disclosure will be helpful for local communities uh, and local taxpayers. Yeah. Gee, I would even go, I mean, I don't know if you've looked at this, but it's really, it's really interesting that you're diving into this with the accounting lens because, and, and unearthing this because the, the not-for-profit status of these hospitals has been gaining more attention in among policymakers in Washington, DC over recent years. I mean, the explosion of 340B drug discounts in that program, for instance, for people that are, uh, for, excuse me, hospitals that are supposed to be catering to the poor um, and other, and they need this revenue stream from drug manufacturers. Well, meanwhile, it's driving consolidation <clears throat> and, and wealthy hospital systems are buying uh, hospitals in poor neighborhoods in order to get those rebates and there's very little ability to do any type of bookkeeping or accounting or auditing as to where the rebates are going, how the rebate flows, if the people already have Medicaid discounts and there's double discounting going on. Um, I think this is a, a real area for policymakers to dig into on a bipartisan basis because it's becoming less and less clear why they have tax exemption anyway, to your point. The ACA was supposed to do away. I mean, there's always going to be some charity care for whatever reason. But if you've got this huge disparity, which you've identified, and you've got Medicaid expansion occurring, uh, why is why is there such a thing as a tax-exempt hospital pretending that it's not for profit? Because there are a lot of people profiting who are running not-for-profit hospitals. No, exactly. I Actually, in our... A New England Journal of Medicine article, as well as in my testimony, I said, let's also disclose gross profit from 340B programs. Remember, only nonprofit hospitals can be eligible for 340B. If you are for-profit, no matter how much charity care uh, help assistance you do, you cannot be eligible for 340B. Uh, so this is a typical nonprofit hospital issue. So let's disclose that. And also I want to add, Joe, 340B, give hospitals a lot of incentive to do vertical integration, right? And then policymakers say, oh, now we looking at such a high price. It's because of greed. Guess what? That's because the uneven playground you guys built to tilt the, the, the mechanism, you know, all the dynamics toward uh, consolidation because of the 340B, right. which is one of the reasons. And, and certainly when it came to consolidation in the run-up to and the passage of Obamacare, there was a lot of talk about the problem that Obamacare would create to drive consolidation because of how the economic incentives inside Obamacare were created. 
the majority Democrats at the time did not want to, to hear that, didn't want to listen to that, and to this day don't want to acknowledge their responsibility and accountability for the impact that their policies and their, their signature bill from 14 years ago now has really created, which causes challenges to the creation of and, and uh, distribution of healthcare across, across the country. Yes, I agree. Uh, I think uh, we, we have to, before we push any other legislative or regulatory effort to reduce price, we have to look at how much unintended consequences and price inflating effects from previous regulations. Yeah. Gee, you've also looked at colonoscopies and the discrepancy in how much these cost based upon what site of care the colonoscopy is delivered in, delivered in. Could, do you want to talk about that sure. for a few minutes? Sure. We utilized the newly available insurer disclosure data. Uh, that, that was uh, implemented under the Trump administration, but also uh, endorsed by the Biden administration. Finally, we got the data. And what we found is the commercial insurers pay hospitals about 55% higher in facility fees than to ambulatory surgical centers for colonoscopy. This is a nationwide study. So we are, we are facing this, this huge price gap for the exactly same service, but between a delivery site. So this drives to, we, we were just talking about consolidation in 340B, but this disparity, um, it also drives consolidation uh, for or motivates hospitals to buy ambulatory surgical centers, what happens when they do that? Do they uh, drive patients to the lower cost setting or do they increase prices in the ambulatory surgical center? Sure. If you uh, have your own physicians joining you, and of course the service volume will go to hospitals and then patients end up paying a high price, right? That's basically the reason why hospitals want to hire those independent, independent physicians. Is, is to, to charge this uh, site-based uh, payment. Mm-hmm. But certainly part of the construct here, again, post-Obamacare enactment, is an economic series of incentives that create these challenging moments for, for health providers. And in their defense, on their behalf, hospitals often point to the challenges that they face from a regulatory landscape and the requirements that they need to comply with versus an ambulatory center or other sites where services are delivered that operate under different rules. And many of these disparities were only accentuated by Obamacare and Obama's healthcare team and how they created and executed Obamacare in its first several years. Uh, so I just want to add, you know, even in commercial markets, right? There's no rule saying uh, every commercial insured patient must use hospitals for colonoscopy. Then consumers are still paying a higher price. So I think we have to look at the other markets, right? Other markets, consumers have absolutely no reason to pay one seller more than the other for the same service, simply because. They, they, one of the sellers incur higher cost. That, that does not make sense. So I think we end up in this situation also fundamentally because there's this third-party payment system. We are using other people's money. Consumers are not empowered. Right, right. And there's a lack of visibility, though, too. Right, G? I mean, you, can't, you don't know necess- in many instances if you get referred by 
a physician for say knee surgery. Let's go with that. Or we'll go, we'll stick with the colonoscopy because that's where the, that's where your research was, but you don't necessarily know who owns that facility and you don't necessarily know the differential in price. And you frequently don't know what your copay might be on the back end of this. Exactly. That's why insured patients have no power. But let's assume a payer, uh, a patient actually pay out of pocket. This is my money. Even if the physician says, you know, gee, go to hospital A, I might think, oh my, oh my goodness, that's 2200 If I go to a, a AIC, that's only 300 I will have to think twice because that's my own money. So people are saying, oh, individual patients don't have negotiating power, which is wrong. Individual patients paying from their own pocket is the most powerful leveraged buyer. Look at any other market, right? We don't combine any purchasing club for buying a TV or buying a car, but but we do not have the pricing issue. So I think the, the the intuition is wrong that when patients pay from their own pocket without insurance, we'll see a higher price because patients are weaker. That's just not not right. So in a world where because of a variety of crazy historical factors, we have this significant third payer challenge, the idea of enhancing consumer power, you've talked about direct payments, which of course has been uh, considered and, and repeatedly rejected by policymakers for good public policy reasons. What beyond more information do your studies and your your professional background here recommend to improve ways to address cost challenges and, and the feeling of pressure that people have, patients have in their pocketbook when they're dealing with the healthcare system? Thank you, Eric. I think the goal is to let patient personally and directly benefit from low price. That means convey the control from third party insurers, governments, regardless to convey, confer the control from these third parties to patients' own hands. That will fundamentally change the market. You know, information disadvantage is actually a symptom, not the disease. If we look at the self-pay, the direct pay market, like the Oklahoma Surgical Center or other providers only accept cash pay patients, the providers voluntarily disclose their price in the most patient-friendly way. Why? Because the market mechanism dictates that, right? If I sell my things, patient pay out of market, I will have to disclose my price. So I would say, you know, uh, fundamentally, if we make people care, personally and directly benefit from low price, people will ask for price and the providers will disclose voluntarily and very creatively. And we will see a good competition on the market. Have we seen examples of this tested, pioneered? Where where have we seen where you've had the ability to put a consumer more in charge of, even though it's third-party expenditures, and benefit from a low price and choose that low price? Absolutely. If we look at the generic drugs, we are seeing, I would say, unexpectedly, a flourishing, thriving cash pay market starting from GoodRx and similar pricing platforms. So what they do is get their contract, so they contract with, the, with many PBMs to compete for every business. So let's say I'm an insured patient. I want to have some generic drugs. I go to GoodRx, guess what? GoodRx give me a price. That is circumventing my own insurance. But the GoodRx use its own P- 
PBM, get a PBM adjudicated price, and then give that to me. So I pay out of my pocket, not through my insurance. I got a very low price, in many cases, even lower than my out-of-pocket if using my insurance. Well, that started this whole dynamic uh, competition. Then we have Mark Cuban, cost plus company. Now we have Amazon Pharmacy saying five dollars. No, you don't use your insurance. Five dollars covering all of your common generic drugs. Then we have Costco, Walmart. Um, we are actually witnessing a very interesting market, uh, almost like experiment for the cash pay market. That's simply because patients can benefit from direct pay. They are seeing the lower price if they don't use insurance versus if they have to use the insurance. You are hitting on, first of all, this, this, the whole dynamic, the market dynamic of these new players entering the market is fascinating. And maybe we should, we should have you on just to discuss that at some point in the future, because we could, we could discuss that for a couple hours, but I want to drill down on this point. You're, you're um, hitting this difference between coverage and care, right? You've got there's, it's frequently used synonymously and has been in the media ever since the Obamacare debate about whether or not it should pass or not. And then in the aftermath, attempts to reform Obamacare was equated with taking away health care. Uh, coverage is care. They are synonymous terms. When what you're just talking about is the fact that people have insurance but they they can save money when they're able to shop and identify the prices that they'd be exposed to. Can you talk a little bit about your work to and your thoughts around the difference between uh, having coverage and actually getting access to care? Because we're seeing a lot of uh, very high copays and deductibles and narrow networks in a number of different insurance markets. Sure. Thank you, Joe. So what we have right now is a system that take money out of patients' hands, controlled by insurance company or government, and they decide how to, how to use it, basically. What we are saying in our JAMA internal medicine article is the insurance creates value only by covering high-cost catastrophic events. Like for, for low-cost uh, common services, it's actually very inefficient to use insurance. That's why if you look at automobile insurance, right, they do not cover auto change. Like property insurance, it does not cover changing faucets, changing light bulbs. Because these things should be transacted through cash pay. Um, and then we have evidence looking at the uh, generic drugs, right? If generic drugs we just mentioned are going through coverage, it's going to be much more expensive because the insurance have, company has to take a cut. But if it goes through a cash market, it's, it's very affordable. So that tells us it is wrong to broaden insurance coverage on everything. Insurance should only be used on catastrophic, expensive events so that to limit the people's financial exposure and all the rest, low-cost low uh, services, routine services like primary care, like uh, your uh, generic drugs, 
um, and flu shots, right, should all go to cash pay. And in the meantime, you will see dramatic drop in insurance premium, and that market money should come back to patients' pocket, let patients use it, then they will do competitive shopping, and then we'll have a very dynamic market. Let insurance do what insurance does best. Let individual consumers do what they do best. Yeah, then that will have, I would say, optimal outcome. So, gee, I just want to make sure I understand this point. Your your argument is that insurance coverage for non-catastrophic events inflates the prices for those services um, or products, be it the vaccines, um, but also inflates the cost of the insurance because it's economically inefficient. That is correct. So I, I don't want to blame uh, insurance companies saying they're, they're great. These are pure players, merely players operating under a game designed by policymakers, right? So we should blame the game, not blame the players. You know, if your insurance company, you would do the same. You would try to expand your medical spending. Every single spending comes under insurance. So I can take a cut, right? That's that's how the, the rule says what I can do. So so we should always come back to the policy reasons instead of just blaming individual players and saying greed is a problem. So the idea of talking about catastrophic levels, Joe, gee, there was a conversation in the early mid-90s about a catastrophic care model as an alternative to what was then Hillary Care. And that did not end particularly well, again, for Republicans back then. Although we've seen examples here, Gigi, to your point, in other places and other ways where consumer power has been employed to keep costs down or bring costs down, how would you go about, how would policymakers you recommend go about dealing with what you kind of point out or some of the economics of this, again, not in a blame and attack scenario, but in let's come up with some constructive ways to, to help consumers empower themselves and in so doing both keep their costs down but ultimately have a better cost impact on federal health care programs mm-hmm. yeah i think our policy uh, approach can be applicable to to any insurance programs let it be commercial or medicare or medicaid the idea is the same so narrow insurance coverage give people money let them spend by themselves. That will reduce premium for everyone. And then for high-risk patients you know, who are seriously ill or financially disadvantaged, then taxpayers should allow their, their part of money, let's say HSA or other mechanism, receive government subsidies, tax-deductible cash contributions from organizations, individuals, to give a very solid uh, safety net to protect these patients. So imagine that would be more efficient use of taxpayers' money. Let's, uh, that's a great policy prescription. Uh, let's pivot for a second to um, drug shortages, another area that you've worked on. So we had the Inflation Reduction Act uh, get passed by President Biden and on a purely partisan vote, um, uh, Democrats supporting it. We currently have a number of drug shortages occurring even before the IRA has really kicked in. I'm wondering, do you do you have a cause for the current drug shortages? Any theories as to why we're having drug shortages? And second, 
looking ahead to when the Inflation Reduction Act really starts to kick in with its price setting mechanisms, what do you anticipate happening down the road? Thank you, Joe. Without looking into details, I would say every every reader or you know everybody interested in, in policy um, should understand whenever there is a price control, there will be shortage. Right, that's that's always gonna happen. That is theory. What we are seeing, you know, let it be drugs, uh, generic drugs, or brand name drugs, new development are mere reflection of the underlying theory. Once we have a price control, we will see shortages. We will definitely see shortages. So this is what we have with the generic drug shortages. Remember, both the Medicare and Medicaid require manufacturers to pay a penalty, uh, known as a rebate, if their price rise faster than inflation. But before the IRA, right, it's only for, for Medicaid programs. But now we have this IRA, then, then Medicare is also going to impose the inflation penalty on, on drugs. So in the normal economic situation, free market, uh, if there's a signal about the shortage, the manufacturers will do two things. Number one, increase their price. Number two, increase production simultaneously, right? Because the manufacturers want to make money. This is a great opportunity. I know the signal. I'm going to capture it. Then everybody is trying to do the same. Guess what? We have expanded production and we will have a higher price. But the higher price is only temporary. Why? Because eventually the market will, will, will uh, saturate and the price will reach equilibrium, eventually go down because you know a production got expanded, maybe it's higher than the demand, then we go back to a lower price level. That is how the market regulates the pricing and production activities. And then we, we, we've never heard like shortage if we are operating a free market. But, but the problem is our policymakers always you know, underestimate the ability of the market and overestimate their ability to, to influence production. And also, I think there's also political reasons, right? Politically appealing maybe to voters. So they do these in well-intended uh, policies, saying, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna cap what you, can, what you can charge. If it's higher inflation, pay us a rebate. Guess what? If I'm a manufacturer, I look at this mechanism, I'm like, okay, I know there's a signal for shortage. I, if I increase production, my price is the same. So my incentives very much discounted. So I'll be less motivated to increase my production, right? Simply because the payoffs are less. Therefore, everybody's thinking this way, we have a shortage. And if policymakers say, okay, if you're in shortage, we're going to re- relieve you from this, this uh, inflation penalty. Guess what? The things will be even worse because I, as a manufacturer, I will try to stay in shortage forever to in, to enjoy this this benefit. So it's, it's just layer after layer of policy failures, in my opinion, to completely distort the market. If we don't address this rebate or what they call inflation penalty on Medicare and Medicaid, I don't think we can fundamentally solve drug shortage. But you're talking about the shortages for drugs that are already invented, not not just the shortages in new innovation because these price controls that they're putting in place is going to send a signal to the market to not invest in certain areas and not to in, invest, um, for instance, competitive therapies to a drug that is about to get uh, a price control put on it by the government. So we we you can see with your understanding of the numbers and studying the numbers, the shortages for currently marketed products, but the theory always holds and we will see shortages 
in new innovations and new inventions which patients are hoping for. I agree with you, Joe. And I also want to add for the uh, investors, the most scary thing is uncertainty. Even if, let's say, the, the government says we are uh, not going to do uh, price control, but there will be some uncertainty in the negotiations, so-called negotiations. That itself will add so much uncertainty in investors' mind. So that will discourage investment. Again, uncertainty is the worst uh, thing uh, that can happen to a, to a capital market. And capital and the brain both are very mobile. So if you put a long-term um, uncertainty on the market, capital will flee, especially general general capital. I'm talking about they can go to anywhere, tech or, or manufacturer or drug, they can flee, but also brain. That would be more fundamental. You know, Smart people have many choices, right? They can choose to go into drug development, or they can go to go to Wall Street, do M&A, or they can choose to become politician, right? Whatever it is, people are making sensible economic-driven decisions. If the brains, smart people, feel that there's uncertainty going into the area, they will make adjustment in their career choice, and that will be a down down um, I would say downstream uh, long-term impact that I, I don't think many people realize. Gee, that's kind of a grim forecast because at some point to, to your observation about price controls never having worked in history and the practical impacts here, as Joe's explained, of the choices that these companies are going to make, as you outlined, there'll be a, a crisis moment for public and healthcare consumers, patients, uh, and certainly policymakers as this policy ultimately runs aground and cuts off drugs and therapies for individuals. In the past, historically, when you've seen price control regimes end up under stress, what happens? How do they fall apart? Do they just kind of drift away? Are they cobbled around with temporary fixes? Is there kind of an uprising and a direct undoing of them? Just historically, walk us through a little bit how we've seen in the past these price control regimes on food, goods, uh, in some cases, services, uh, ultimately come a cropper. Yes, so there's some remedy, right? Because Medicare is not the whole market. So look at what Medicare, Medicaid uh, do with uh, physician reimbursement and and the hospital reimbursement. So these providers can increase the price for commercial payers to somehow remedy uh, the price control impact from government resetters. But for drugs, I think the impact is more salient because a lot of drugs we're talking about are for uh, the senior patients, right? They're more likely to be covered by, by Medicare. Uh, and so, so you know, the, the impact from government uh, price regulations will, will have probably a more, more severe impact on the drug manufacturers than if we just talk about Medicare, Medicaid price for, uh, for physicians and hospitals. Well, again, that's startling and a danger that's just going to compound over the next several years as the Inflation Reduction Act and price negotiation policies kind of unfold. But I tell you what, without you and others sounding the alarm, policymakers will be just that much further behind when patients are in a real jam. So, gee, I got to tell you, it's been a great conversation today, Joe. Right. I'm saying I was going to say the same thing, G. I understand. Uh, why you were given the teaching award at by the Alumni Association at Johns Hopkins. This is all very clear, even for a non-economist 
lawyer like myself uh, to comprehend. And I'm so glad that the that Michigan State took a chance on you because you're doing incredible original work here. You explain your points uh, very well. And I hope you have a long and fruitful career in looking at the numbers and explaining them to uh, English majors and for politicians who otherwise get all bollocked up in understanding the obvious, because this, um, this is just a really good work that you're doing. And uh, I can't thank you enough. I can't thank you for this conversation enough. And I hope we can have you back soon. Thank you so much, Joe. Huge honor. You know, I, I, I cannot uh, thank you enough for what you do in this space. I know this kind of outlier voice. I mean, most people always underestimate the uh, force of market and overestimate what the policymakers can do. But you are really giving, I would say, more, more truth for more reality-based advice and suggestions and diagnosis. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Survivors for Solutions, our intrepid producer, John C.Z. Swartaki, our distribution partner, Big Wig Media, and our production team, Evergreen, along with our assistant producer, Eli Levy. On behalf of DCEKG, this is Eric Ulan, who with host Joe Grogan, thanks you for listening. We'll be talking. Mm-hmm.